In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus' last days in Jerusalem before his arrest and crucifixion come at us rapid fire this morning in this eyewitness account from Luke. Like a circling pack snarling and snapping, Israel's leaders dogged his steps as he fended them off. And amazingly, as things seemed to spiral out of control those last couple of weeks, somehow he stood strong, seemingly in control of all the chaos. I don't, still don't know how it, it was possible, but he was. He did it. See, over just the past few days, Jesus has ridden in triumph into the city amid shouts of welcome by a crowd sensing royalty once more approaching David's city. We'll honor that event next week at Palm Sunday. Once that was over, though, he went through the crowds and headed straight to the Temple Mount, where he and his followers managed to block the entrances to the 35-acre temple complex. Think about that. Where he then drove out himself the merchants who had turned much of the area into a market. He cleaned house in a big way, and in doing so, asserted himself as the rightful manager of God's house. Even more, he claimed to be the actual house itself. He occupied the area until late in the day, shutting down the afternoon sacrifice in the process, and left only when he was good and ready. So much for meek and mild teacher Jesus. He made the statement loud and clear. The new king is here, the long-for Messiah, and he signaled that the time of the temple was soon to be passed. It was on its way out. Now that's provocative to the extreme. Any wonder the chief priests, the scribes, and the principal city leaders couldn't wait to destroy him? Only his popularity with the regular crowd shielded him from their clutches, but just for a time. These leaders, this circling pack, confront him. Just who gave you this authority, they snarled. Jesus brilliantly blunts their attack by asking them a question he knows will expose them as frauds. And then he turns the tables by serving them a legal summons to answer charges against them. Okay, time out. You may be thinking, where did you get Jesus acting like an attorney here? I mean, it looks like he just tells them a parable, one of those nice stories, right? Isn't that what parables are? Sort of like, Grandma, Grandpa, tell us a story before we go to bed. No, 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 no. They're not nice stories at all. There's a lot to them, a lot more. Believe me, trust me, you do not want Jesus to begin telling you a parable. Because that's what God's real prophets did to summon Israel and their leaders to answer charges of rebellion against God and the people. Let me give you an example. Do you remember when King David did a very terrible thing, a couple of terrible things in succession? He, he wanted uh, one of his most loyal soldiers' wife. And so he ordered that soldier into the battle, and he ordered the troops to pull back. So this soldier was right out in front of the arrows, and that this soldier would be killed. So then David could have Bathsheba. David thought maybe he'd skate for those crimes. Maybe thought he was above the law. He's king, right? Well, then the prophet Nathan showed up at the palace. 
and publicly called out David for his crimes. And how did Nathan do it? Did he walk up and hand him a, a, a summons like you and I might get today to appear in court? Did he say you're under arrest for crimes against the people in God? No, what Nathan did was he told David a parable. And everybody else in the palace listened in. And remember, it was about a rich man who very cruelly stole a poor man's only lamb. David was so angry at this parable, he said, the man that did that deserves to die. Nathan turns and says, you're the man. You see, Nathan used the parable as a summons, like you and I would get one to say, we have to appear in court. Maybe we're having to do jury duty or Maybe there's a traffic fine and we have to appear. I've had both. They're not fun in some ways. I mean, you have to go. You have to appear in court. It's a legal summons, and prophets had the right and the responsibility to do that in Israel. You see, they were God's prosecutors, prosecuting his law, being broken by the people. And so Jesus is doing the same thing when he speaks in parables. You see, Jesus, the accounts that we have in the gospel tell us that Jesus spoke in parables, yes, but he did only at the end of his work with the people. He had run out of all the avenues that he had. They were all exhausted. You see, he came to his people with grace, with truth, with healings, miracles, with a life lived in perfect obedience and thanks to his father. He loved God and his neighbor fully in public and in private when people were looking and when they weren't. He stood before his own people as the fulfillment of all God's promises in all the Bible. He himself was there as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. But his own people, and you know this happened, his own rejected him. Nothing was left now but to issue the summons, to pass judgment, to pronounce guilt on his rebellious house, and he did it in the form of parables. Today's parable is of the noble vineyard owner, his son, and the wicked tenants. It was aimed at Israel's leadership, and it hit them square between the eyes. You see, the vineyard owner of this parable, and it was no mistaking who that vineyard owner was, it was God, because Israel was characterized all through the Old Testament as the vineyard that God had planted. This vineyard owner is God, and he's acting out of unspeakable nobility. He profoundly hopes that his choice of total vulnerability going to those wicked tenants, sending them messengers, sending them his prophets, would awaken in them a long-forgotten sense of honor. But they were still violent and bent on claiming the vineyard for their own. You see, they were tenants. They were renters, but they imagined themselves owners. This vineyard owner is so noble and so vulnerable, he's even willing to risk his precious son going to them. You know what happened in the parable. And this is what happened in the history. This is what actually happened in their history. The sent messengers, the prophets, were beaten and wounded. The son was sent. And he came himself vulnerable and unarmed to the vineyard. And what did they do to him? 
it says that they dragged him outside of the vineyard and killed him. I want you to remember this. Remember these wicked tenants imagined themselves and pictured themselves and hoped themselves owners because they had the produce of that field. They could live off of that produce for years. They claimed it as their own. And so when the son, the rightful heir comes, they said, this is the one, let's get rid of him. So we're the heirs. We're going to change the facts on the ground here. And because of their greed, you know what they did? Jewish law says that all the produce of that field, the grapes, everything that's produced in that field, would be defiled and considered worthless if there was a death in that field. So they not only plot to kill the son, they drag him outside the vineyard and kill him. Do you see how greedy, how calculating, how awful this is? What do you think the owner would do then? Jesus says the vineyard would be taken from them. Those leaders, those wicked, violent leaders who imagined themselves the owners rather than the renters. I put to you, that we in this diocese, in this area, are still under the threat of lawsuits and confiscation of property, and we don't know how it's going to end and be adjudicated because, in fact, the leaders, both lay and clergy, the leaders of the National Episcopal Church seems, at least to my estimation, to have considered themselves owners rather than renters. And I don't say that vengefully because, honestly, it's a temptation for anybody in leadership of God's church to imagine that they own the place. They don't. But what a stunning picture. It's a true judgment rendered by Jesus, himself the beloved son, who would soon be arrested, dragged outside of the city, you'll recall, and crucified by orders of both Jewish and Gentile governments. Who killed Jesus? I've heard the screed that the Jews killed Jesus. Pretext for anti-Semitism everywhere. Leaders of the Gentiles and leaders of the Jews plotted together. Folks, we're all guilty in this horrible miscarriage of justice, this crucifixion of an innocent man. We're all guilty. So there remains a choice before us, no matter who we are, where we're from, what people group we might be belonging to. God has rendered judgment on us all, and we're guilty as charged. All we like sheep have gone astray, the prophet says. We have turned everyone to his, to her own, own way. We prefer our own self-centered way. And the prophet continued by saying, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see the choice before us this morning, as it is every morning that we have, the gift of every morning we get, to either accept or reject the pardon of all pardons guaranteed in Jesus' own blood, his lifeblood poured out for us 
lived in our place to satisfy the rightful demands of God's law, to love him and our neighbor in thought, in motive, in word, in deed that we daily fail to accomplish. And the most precious of life of all, sacrifice to pay the awful price of our treachery and rebellion against God and our neighbors. He moved heaven and earth to come down for you and for me. Take on life lived under this all too often pitiless existence. He lived selflessly for you and me. He faced the howling storms of our impotent rage. He willingly lived out each day totally vulnerable, unarmed, risking his all, losing his all, that we all might be given his victory, that we all might be treated as he deserves to be treated because he was treated as we deserve to be treated. He welcomed us into the heart of all things by his willing rejection. And he gives us the gift and grace of honor through his willingness to endure our shame. Paul, once an honored and decorated Jewish Pharisee, dedicated to wiping out this new movement of Christianity by rounding up, arresting, and participating in the deaths of new believers and their families. He tells us in his letter to the Philippians that after he had this head-on collision with the crucified and risen Jesus, it's as if he ran into a stone wall. You know, something has to give. It was Paul. He writes that to be confronted, forgiven, and received in by Jesus made all his own, quote, accomplishments and status in life to be absolutely nothing compared to belonging to the true and only Savior and Lord of all. This Savior, this mighty rock, rejected by the wicked builders, but now majestic as the cornerstone, stands before us every day as a sure refuge we can cling to or stands against us to crush us if this offer is refused. Where are you? Where am I? Where do you, where do I take our stand? 